Do you ever watch movies with people who have a different movie-watching philosophy than you do? Probably not what you thought I was going to say. This is important, though. This is an important ethical discussion we need to get out of the way before we get started. Did you know that there are people out there who cannot sit still during movies? It's true. This problem is expressed in a variety of, variety of ways. Someone who struggles with this may continually ask questions during a movie. Any of you know someone like that? Or they may not be able to make it through the movie without a bathroom break. Come on, did you not prepare for this? They may constantly be asking you to pause the movie so that they can give their prediction about how it's going to end. Many other things, constantly talking about how the book was better. I might be guilty of that one from time to time. Let's be honest with each other this morning. Let's just have open confession time right now. Raise your hand if you're one of these people. You cannot sit still during a movie. I see that hand. See that hand? Thank you. We're going to open a confessional booth later. A few husbands raising their wife's hand. I'm not sure I feel about that. There's two kinds of people in this world. Those who watch movies from start to finish as an experience, and those who are up and down the whole time with no idea of what's going on. I guess maybe there's a third type of person. Maybe some of you don't watch movies. You don't count for this. I know this is a silly example, but I'm bringing this up because sometimes when we read our Bible like this, up and down, in and out, we'll miss the message that we're trying to understand, the author's message. And we're going to cover a large section of 2 Corinthians today. And one of the reasons that we're covering so much ground is because if we were to pick out just a few verses here, which would be an okay way to do it, but if we were to do that, we would run the risk of seeing how it's connected to the greater context of what's going on in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. So open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We'll get to the text soon. If you're using one of those Bibles that's underneath the chairs in front of you, then you'll find 2 Corinthians on page 1155. That's page 1155 if you're using our Bibles. There's a lot going on in the background of our passage. The relationship between Paul and Corinth was complicated. We're jumping into the middle of this relationship, and because of that, I'd like to bring you up to speed. You'll see this in your notes also. You have a few blanks, but there's some events leading up to the writing of 2 Corinthians that I think we would do well to be aware of. This first thing, this happened way back, is that Paul communicates his plans to visit Corinth twice, on his way to Macedonia and on the way back. I don't have a map to show you, but hopefully that gives you a good picture in your head of he's going to stop by Corinth while he goes to Macedonia, and on his way back, he's going to stop by again. These are the plans that he communicated, and you can read about it in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. I'll just read those verses for you. Paul said, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. You might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with ministry? The big white letters on the top of your outline say, how does ministry happen? It's all connected. We'll get there. So this is what Paul communicated. He's going to visit them twice. What happened next chronologically? Well, Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's in our Bibles. And they do not respond well at all. They do not like the message that he gives them. 
in 1 Corinthians. And this is not really a surprise if you know what's inside that letter. There were many sins and matters of church order that needed to be corrected by Paul. There were divisions among them, basically based on which preacher they liked best. There was an incestuous relationship in the church, and it was being tolerated by the members. People were getting drunk during communion, and they were also viewing spiritual gifts that God gave them as an opportunity to build themselves up and get recognition rather than to build up one another and give glory to God. Lots of issues like that are things that Paul was trying to correct in the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's no wonder that there's not very many churches called Corinthian Baptist Church today, right? They weren't exactly exemplary. And the Corinthians did not like this rebuke from Paul. And when Paul heard how they responded, he changed his travel plans. He makes an emergency visit to try to fix things. And that also does not go well. This is one of the key complaints that false teachers in Corinth had against Paul. They would say to others that Paul told us he was going to visit us twice, but then he didn't. He lacks integrity. And Paul describes this emergency change of plans as a painful visit in chapter 2, verse 1. He was rejected by the church, so he left. He didn't stay long. But also, he writes a harsh letter condemning his opponents, and he has Titus deliver it. This letter, we don't have today. This is not 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that he wrote in between these two, and uh, there's no surviving copies. It was not part of the inspired word of God. In this letter, it seems that Paul demanded allegiance to himself and to the gospel that he originally preached to them. It's harsh, not in the sense that it's unreasonable, but in the sense that it's strongly worded and demanding allegiance. This is probably the letter he was referring to in chapter 2, verse 4, when he said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. After Titus delivered this letter, time passes. Right? I, I can't really imagine time or communication taking this long I have had a smartphone since I was in 10th grade, so if I wanted to tell somebody something, I've, I've not written very many letters in my life is what I'm trying to say. But obviously for most of human history, if you want to communicate with somebody far away, there's going to be a waiting period. And this uh, one commentary that I really enjoy reading uh, describes, oh, sorry, I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, the anxiety was probably building during this waiting time when Paul wanted to know, is the church going to respond well to my letter? Right? I, they didn't respond well to my first one. They didn't respond well to my visit. Now I have to wait for weeks, months. I don't know. I don't know how long he had to wait. And he didn't know either. He's just playing the waiting game and wondering if this church that he helped start, this church that he loves, is going to respond positively. This was likely a very worrisome time for Paul. And on top of all the waiting, Paul was hoping to find Titus in Troas, and hear how he received his message. But then Titus wasn't there. Paul couldn't find Titus and get the news, so the anxiety continued to build. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, I know we're jumping all around right now, but in 12 and 13 of chapter 2, Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. 
But taking leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So there's a big open door for the gospel, and Paul uncharacteristically goes away from it because he, that's how bad he wanted to find Titus. It was that important to him. One commentary says that hopes were dashed when Titus failed to appear. In addition to his apprehension about the church in Corinth, Paul was now also concerned about Titus's safety. This commentator thinks that Paul may have wondered if Titus was carrying with him part of the offering that he was collecting at various churches, and maybe bandits had gotten Titus and gotten the funds. Why else had, Paul, had Titus taken so long? That's one possibility, one thing that could have been running through Paul's head. And we all know that when we're anxious and fearful, our minds always run to the worst possible scenario. So who knows what, uh, what Paul was thinking about, but it could be that. But that led Paul to say goodbye to the believers at Troas and head to Macedonia. And it's a good thing he did because that's where he ended up finding Titus. Paul finds Titus in Macedonia and he hears the good news that many in Corinth have repented and want to follow Paul again. You don't need to turn there, but just a few pages over, you would find in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul describing this. He says, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So like I said, this passage that we're going to be in today is long. It's interwoven with all these other things going on, some other letters that aren't in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 7, it's all over the place, but it's telling one story. And all of this is leading up to Paul writing the letter of 2 Corinthians. It looks like you can't see it on the screen there. But uh, your blank is probably 2 Corinthians or writing, something like that. Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians after all of this. And I know this is a lot of information. Don't feel like you need to internalize it and memorize it. I'm giving it to you now because we're about to hop on the plane and fly over the text from a bird's eye view. I'm not going to keep you till 2 p.m. to look at every single word in this, in this long passage. But I want you to know what's going on on the ground as we fly over the text. One final note that we should keep in our minds. If we're talking about Paul's relationship with this church, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians that can't be overlooked. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. But this is how Paul summarized his relationship with the Corinthians at this point. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't just write this off because... It was the great Apostle Paul who said it, and there's no way we can be as good as him. Don't ignore what this verse means for our relationships when we try to answer the question, how does ministry happen? It doesn't matter if ministry is your profession or not. If you claim to know Christ as your Savior, there's a sense in which you are in full-time gospel-preaching ministry. Whether you get paid for it or not, if you're a Christian, you're a full-time preacher of the cross. Since you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, your mission is to live a life that proclaims the gospel wherever you go. And in our long passage today, we have three expectations. Three expectations of ministry, three expectations of preaching the cross. The first two are expectations that God has of us, and the last one is an expectation that we can have of God. So we'll jump into these. The first expectation is that God expects your cross-preaching life to have integrity. Follow along in your own Bibles as I read verses 12 through 14 of chapter 1. 
Paul says, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several elements of integrity that we see Paul showing in chapter 1. You have to remember, as we work our way through this, that Paul's defending his ministry from an attack. The false teachers are questioning this integrity, mainly because he changed his travel plans. But the words that we just read are the words of a man with a clear conscience. What I love about these few verses is that we see an extremely masculine godliness coming from Paul. As I say that, I do realize that masculine has pretty much become a bad word in our culture, hasn't it? In fact, it's almost an unpardonable sin in our culture to embrace traditional gender roles that God designed. Even in the church, our thinking has been affected by the world we live in, so that so many of us are confused about who we are and what God has called us to do and how we are supposed to function. Perhaps even some here have been so affected by the culture that you can't even tell what's masculine about what Paul is doing here. But, but I'll explain. The essential masculine functions that we see in Scripture boil down to three things. Many of you have heard this before. It would be leading, protect, providing, and defending. Leading, providing, and defending. And Paul is being viciously attacked by the false apostles. They're making accusations about his integrity. They're making accusations about his genuineness as an apostle, against his ability to lead the Corinthian church in a way that God wants them to go. Paul not only has the opportunity, but the responsibility as a man and as a leader in the church to defend himself and to defend the ones that he's responsible for. Because if he fails to defend and protect, the church at Corinth could be overrun by false teachers and a false gospel. I'm not saying that all expressions of masculinity are godly. Paul's masculinity could have erred in two directions. He could have responded with red-faced anger, like losing self-control, shouting down his opponents. James says that type of anger fails to produce the righteousness of God, just seeks to build up his own ego. That would have been wrong, a bad expression of masculinity. Alternatively, he, he could have completely failed to be courageous. That would be another way his, he could have erred. Rather than defending himself for the sake of the Corinthians and for the sake of the gospel, he could have rolled over and hid behind Silas, hoping that someone else would do the manly work of defending and protecting for him. So not all expressions of masculinity are godly, but I'm also not saying that it's always wrong for women to express masculine virtues. Like think of Deborah, the judge in the Old Testament, who, delivers God who she delivered God's people in a very masculine way because that's what the times called for and that's what God called her to do. As I was reading through, I generally try to think through my sermon the morning before I preach it, and it hit me that this is the home of Rosie the Riveter. There's an example of a cultural icon 
that kind of emitted a kind of masculine rising to the challenge uh, because that's what the times called for, right? So I'm not, I'm not accepting everything that that icon stands for necessarily or all the ways that it's been used. But at the time, wasn't it appropriate because there was such a great need in our country for women to rise to the challenge and help provide in a way that they normally wouldn't have? I would say that was appropriate. So it's not always as if women expressing these masculine virtues is wrong. That's not the point at all. And I don't want to get in the, lost in the weeds too much. But in our passage, Paul is showing us what godly, balanced masculinity looks like when it's attacked. It doesn't get angry and offended. It doesn't roll over and die. It stands its ground firmly, offers a sensible explanation, and it continues to lead. Now, if Paul had made a mistake, if he had actually wronged the Corinthians then the godly, manly thing to do would be to repent, seek forgiveness, and then continue to lead. But godly masculinity doesn't just roll over and die, especially not when it's done nothing wrong. In the next section of verses, we see another element of integrity, which is honesty rooted in the gospel. And I won't read this entire section. I gave, I gave some of it uh, a few minutes ago. Remember the big complaint against Paul was lying about his travel plans. But there's a difference between lying and changing your mind. Paul did change his plans, but he did it because of the Corinthians' sinful response to the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul did change his plans, but that doesn't mean he lied. I started out with a silly joke about movies, right? Let's, let's imagine that my wife wanted to watch a movie with me tonight, a particular movie, and I say, yeah, great idea. We'll do that tonight after church. But then the power goes out or something. That happens around here, right? And then we lose power, and we don't have the ability to watch the movie. Does that suddenly make my previous statement a lie based on nothing that I did? No, it doesn't mean I lied to her. That just means the situation changed, right? In the same way, Paul was not trying to deceive the Corinthians when he said, I'll visit you twice. His intention was to visit them twice, but then the situation changed and demanded that he change his plans as well. And he explains all of this to them in our passage, but the thing I really want to point out is that there's a really important and a really cool reason for his honesty. And hopefully, it's the motivation for our honesty as well as we seek to live lives that proclaim the gospel. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Paul is saying, They can trust his faithfulness because he proclaimed the gospel of God's faithfulness. The gospel fulfilled the long-awaited promises of God, promises of a Messiah, a Redeemer, the one that we sing about, the one that we're gathering this morning to celebrate the resurrection of, that he would liberate captives, heal the sick and the lame, and cause the blind to see. All these promises of God, 
the promises that were made to Abraham, the prophets, and by extension to the world, all these promises of God have either been fulfilled in Jesus or will yet be fulfilled in Jesus. If the Corinthians can trust Paul about the faithfulness of God, couldn't they choose to trust him about travel plans? It's not even conceivable for Paul to utter lies and practice deceit because he serves a God who's faithful. I wonder if that's our attitude as cross-preachers. Is that your attitude at work? Is it marked by an honesty that looks unusual to the world? Or with your kids? Do you ever, do you ever lie to your kids to make your life a little bit easier? We should be more honest than we need to be because the slightest hint of deception can destroy gospel opportunities. As God is faithful, we ought to be faithful. Our honesty is rooted in the gospel and in the faithfulness of the God we serve. And the third element of integrity is confidence based on the Holy Spirit's work. Verses 21 and 22 say, Now he who establishes us with you is Christ, and anointed us, sorry, established us with you in Christ, and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. It's kind of a cool few verses because we see all the members of the Trinity, but focusing on the Spirit and his function as a pledge. Some theologians or translations even refer to this as earnest, the earnest of our salvation, really meaning the same thing as a pledge. Those of you that have bought a home at some point in your life, you're aware that uh, when, you, when you purchase the home and the bank wants to make sure that you're serious, they'll often request that you put $1,000 in as earnest money, even before the down payment, just to show that you're serious about purchasing the full home. The $1,000 or however much the earnest money is acts as a pledge that more is coming. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is a pledge to us that more is coming more salvation is coming. Make no mistake, if you know Christ as your Savior today, you are saved, but not as saved as you're going to be. You're going to get a new body that's more capable of enjoying God because it's free from the stains of sin. And that body will increase your capacity to enjoy God and you will be saved in a way that you're not saved now. You'll be glorified, not just justified This confidence in our salvation is meant to increase our confidence that we have in our mission. How could you minister to others if you weren't convinced that you had what they needed most? We need to be so sure that the gospel is what people need that we're willing to share it with them. If you want to minister with integrity, like Paul, Not only do you need a clear conscience and honesty rooted in the gospel, you need confidence that what you're doing matters. And Paul ends this chapter with a couple verses that springboard us into this next expectation. Let me read these last two verses, 23 and 24. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, still explaining himself. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So we see that the the decision to change his travel plans did not come from a desire to please himself. It came from a desire to do what's best for the Corinthians. And that's called love. 
It's the second expectation for our cross-preaching life. If we want to be cross-preachers, we don't just need integrity. We need love, genuine love, genuine love for others. Love is another one of those words that's been hijacked by our godless culture. Some of the ways that Paul describes his love for the Corinthians would not be considered loving if you went over to the University of Michigan or many other places. Over there, love is acceptance. Love is tolerance. Love is approval. Love is celebration of even the most ungodly, unhelpful lifestyles. But that's not true love. It's not loving to say that evil is good and good is evil. It's not good for people. If you want to see what real love is, look at the first three verses of chapter 2. He says, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I come, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Do you hear the the genuine emotional attachment that Paul has for this church? That's the first element of love, genuine emotional attachment. Not a mushy, undefined feeling, but an attachment that shares both sorrow and joy. He wanted to share the joy of the gospel with these believers. And he knew that if he came while they were still upset with him, there would be no joy to be shared and no comfort to be had. Many of you know that I worked for several summers at a Christian camp. Camp ministry thrives on a couple things, hard work and routine. At the end of every week, the entire camp staff, this was a big camp, the entire camp staff of probably 50 people, composed of people from 7th grade to college students, we would clean the entire campground, every dorm, inside, outside, and uh, this was quite a feat of organization. We had tried to do it as fast and efficiently as possible, and uh, odds are if you didn't know where you were supposed to be during those few hours of work, you were uh, slowing somebody down because they were waiting on you. There was always something you were supposed to be doing. It was very organized. I was very close with one of the directors of the camp. It was actually the man who uh, did my wife and I's premarital counseling and Um, performed our wedding ceremony, and today still he's a mentor of mine, and uh, he's known for being an extremely hard worker. Like if if there's a man out there that works harder than this man, I definitely do not want to meet that man. (laughs) I just read this morning on on Facebook that uh, this guy I'm referring to ran a 60-mile foot race yesterday. (laughs) One day during cleanup, my mentor and I noticed a bunch of middle school boys messing around in the kitchen, snapping each other with towels, doing whatever middle school boys do. And uh, we, we saw it from a distance across the dining hall. And uh, he turned to me. I think he was getting a little frustrated possibly with these boys. Maybe he had previous run-ins with them throughout the week. I'm not sure. But I think he was frustrated because he turned to me and said, Michael, you better go in there and whip them into shape because if I go in there, I'm going to crack some skulls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if everyone can appreciate that or not. I, th- I think he was speaking figuratively. 
This was an expression of love, though, as much as it may not seem like it. Avoiding a visit because of the pain it would cause. In the same way, Paul didn't want to return to Corinth when they were not in fellowship because he really cared about them, and another painful visit is not something that he wanted to happen. Let's read a few more verses, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some, good, some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. The aspect of love here is that, that Paul was willing to hurt them for a purpose. Remember, instead of a painful visit, he wrote them a harsh letter demanding allegiance to him and to the true gospel. His willingness to hurt for a purpose is really clearly communicated by a cross-reference in chapter 7. It'll be on the screen, so you can turn there if you want, but in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, which I believe he's referring to the harsh letter, the one that's not part of Scripture, although I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. We have a lot to learn about this kind of love, this level of love. A love that's willing to hurt It's no wonder they wouldn't like this in a godless world, right? A love that's willing to hurt. A love that's willing to act in a way that causes tears. Not only tears for the other person, by the way. Paul is also writing with tears. He's not enjoying this. He's attached to them emotionally. And because he knew the effect that this letter would have on them, he's writing with tears, knowing that it will cause them tears. Wasn't excited to hurt them. There's some verses in Proverbs that also illustrate this for parents. Just as an example, we know that the the word teaches that he who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Once again, our definition of love is so opposed to the world. This is probably appalling to, to some in the unbelieving world. But why would we let them define love for us? Why would we let the world tell us what love is? What do they know about love? God chose us. God chose to love us. We're the ones to have love. Love is willing to hurt. Love is willing to cause tears, not in anger, but with tears of its own in order to bring about obedience to God. And we can see the purity of Paul's love and the purity of his motives because of the willingness to forgive that he shows in the next few verses. In verses 7 through 11, Paul says, so that to the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Jump down to verse 10. But the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. I'm not sure any of us love the people that we're trying to minister to as much as Paul loved the Corinthians. 
He was moved by their pain and sorrow. He rejoiced with them during the good times. He was willing to hurt them for the purpose of bringing out obedience, and he was quick to forgive them when they turned from their sin. This is love that proves genuineness. And when you combine it with the integrity that Paul has already shown us, it's no wonder that he was so effective as a preacher of the cross. God used him greatly, and by studying Paul's life in these chapters, I think we're starting to get a good idea of his philosophy of ministry. God's expectation of us as we seek to proclaim the gospel to a community that desperately needs Christ is that we would be loving and have integrity because of the love and integrity that we've seen in Paul and really that Christ has shown to us. But we aren't only today going to talk about what God expects of us in our lives of proclaiming the cross, we're also going to see what we can expect of God. This third expectation doubles as our big idea for today, the thing that we should be thinking about as we walk to our cars in the parking lot. We can expect our cross-preaching life to accomplish God's purposes. I know that sounds a little vague. I think it'll be an encouragement by the time we're done. The scripture reading from Isaiah 55 was meant to parallel this big idea when it said, my word shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. The problem is we need to figure out what does God desire, not what do we desire. Let's follow along as I read the final section in 2 Corinthians 2. I'll read it in its entirety, verses 12 through 17. Now when I came to Troas... Remember, he was looking for Titus there. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like so many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I just love these six verses makes me feel small, but in the right way. It makes me feel as small as I think I'm supposed to feel. And these six verses, I see a big God sovereignly directing not only Paul as his minister, but everyone who would hear Paul's message, everyone who would hear him preach. In Sunday school with the teens, we're going through how to study your Bible. And it's kind of relevant to this particular passage We're trying to understand what the author is trying to communicate, and he's using words that are confusing and not talking the way that we would talk, but the original audience would have understood exactly why he's using words like triumph and aroma and fragrance. And I'm going to explain to you what they know about their culture that you may or may not know. They're living in the Roman world, The Roman Empire rules everything that they have ever known with an iron fist. And Paul's readers would have been familiar with something called a Roman triumph. Does anyone know what a Roman triumph is? 
That's why that's how we can lose track of what the apostle's saying, right? When we're outside of the culture and trying to break in. A Roman triumph is an honor that's bestowed on a military leader who accomplishes a great feat, such as capturing a new territory for the empire. More land for Rome means more taxes for Rome, so they rewarded conquerors by honoring them with a triumph. Julius Caesar was offered one of these when he captured uh, what is now France. It was Gaul back then. When a military leader is bestowed with this honor, with this triumph, they aren't allowed to enter the city of Rome until it's ready for them because they're going to deck out the city with decorations and it's going to be organized for a celebration, an entire day dedicated to celebrating the conquest of a man. When the city is ready, the conqueror enters in a massive parade. Large quantities of incense are burned in the city, filling the air with a sweet aroma, the aroma of victory. But it's not such a sweet smell for everybody because another part of the parade would be the prisoners of war in cages, the captives that they have captured. And this celebration of Rome's victory would culminate in the death of Rome's new captives. When the prisoners smelled the burning incense, they knew that their death was near. For the Roman, the smell meant victory. For the captor, captive, certain death. So now you know why Paul is using strange language in these verses. It wouldn't have sounded strange to his original readers. Verse 14, God always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. The gospel does not smell the same to everybody. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Some experience the gospel, they hear the message, and they hate it. But to some of us, there isn't a sweeter smell on earth. Some of us would sooner die than deprive ourselves of the aroma of the gospel. When you look at the big idea, we can expect our cross-preaching life to accomplish God's purpose. That's meant to put us in our place. We can so easily start to define success in ministry, success in our mission, as visible success. I share the gospel with him. He got saved. So that's a win, right? Sure, that's a win. But would it be any less of a win if he didn't get saved? That's not the expectation that we should have. Our expectation should be to accomplish God's purpose by proclaiming the gospel. And sometimes people reject the message. That doesn't mean it's pointless to preach, and that doesn't mean that God isn't glorified by the preaching. The success in our obedience, or the success, rather, is to be obedient and faithful to proclaim the message. But don't overreact, because that also doesn't mean we don't have to try and try hard. We are trying to convince and persuade and argue for the truth. We try as hard as we can. We try as hard as we know how. We have strategy. We have intentionality. But the victory comes not when someone is converted, but when the gospel is proclaimed with all our strength and with all our mind. Then we let God accomplish his purpose 
which are higher than ours. I have three questions for all of us to consider. How does the gospel smell to you? One of the tests of your salvation is how attractive the gospel is. And I don't, I don't mean being forgiven. That's attractive to everybody. <laughs> how attractive is it to you when you have to forgive? Jesus and the writers of the epistles make it clear that those who are truly forgiven are people who are also transformed. If you don't believe me, then look at the parable of Jesus where he talks about a man that's forgiven of this innumerable debt. Comes out to millions and millions and millions of dollars in our money. He's forgiven. And what's he do? He goes out and shakes down a servant who owes him pennies in comparison. The man was forgiven in some sense of the word, but he didn't find it in himself, the ability to forgive others. The passage says that he was handed over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. But that's not all. Jesus says right after that verse, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So when I ask, how does the gospel smell to you? That's not an easy question. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, so it smells good. I go to church, so it smells good. You can't just say that. It's easy for forgiveness to smell good when you're receiving it. How does it smell when you have to give it? Salvation is all of grace, and we take hold of it by our faith. But the Bible also says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If Jesus hasn't changed your life, if the gospel isn't transforming you, then it's at least worth asking, do you really believe the gospel? There's a number of people here who would love to talk to you if you're wondering about that, myself included, Pastor Jim included. Does the gospel smell good to you not only when you're receiving grace, but when you have to give grace? Here's another question. Do you smell like the gospel? Has the gospel so permeated you that the world smells it on you? Is your life marked by the integrity and love that Paul demonstrates in our passage? Remember, this isn't a good smell to everybody. So one of the tests of this one would be if you've ever been rejected. If you fit in perfect with the world, if you can't find anyone that dislikes you, if, uh, if everything you ever say is totally accepted by the secular world, if you smell great to them, then you don't smell like the gospel because some people hate the smell of the gospel. To captives of sin, it's the fragrance of death. If you really smell like the gospel, you'll be rejected. But the final question is, is not just for us as individuals, but for us as a group. Is the aroma of our church going far enough? Is the gospel aroma going far as a result of this body of believers? It's not enough for the aroma of Christ to only be in this room on Sunday morning. If Jesus really rose again, he's Lord of all. The aroma of the gospel has to reach the community. And we have a few programs in the church that are supposed to help with this, right? We have the backpack outreach in August. We have the fall festival. The youth group is trying out a dodgeball outreach event next month. And when we have these outreach events, at a minimum, I would say they should be marked on your calendar and you should be praying for them. But if possible, you should also be inviting people. You should be available to help serve if you're needed. This is the mission of the church, this is the reason we're here, to make disciples in a community of grace. 
But those are just a few events a year. And we're fools if we think any one of those programs is the magic ticket to seeing lives change and that because we have a few outreach programs, we can check the box on the Great Commission. Yep, we're doing that. If we're going to see new believers converted, it's going to be because one of you took the gospel to them. If Calvary Baptist Church is going to be here in 50 years, it's going to be because there's a culture of evangelism and discipleship. It's going to be because the members of our church take the Great Commission seriously and the world smells the gospel on us. And although we get rejected a lot, some people love the smell and they join us. It will be the fragrance of death to most of them, but it's our job to make sure that everyone smells the aroma of the gospel. We can expect our cross-preaching life to accomplish God's purposes. Sharing the gospel does not ensure that salvations will occur. It's just a matter of obedience. And we all have a lot we could do to grow in this area. Look at verse 14 one last time where Paul was able to say, always and in every place when he talks about the places that he proclaimed the gospel. Always. I can't say that. And I doubt very many of us can confidently say, where I go, the gospel goes. The answer isn't another church program. It's repentance. Repentance of our failure to share Christ, failure to be bold, and a failure to love the gospel. We need to have a love for the gospel that can't be silenced. The series is trying to answer the question, how does ministry happen? The answer today is that ministry happens when we live a life full of integrity and love that proclaims the gospel wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your love to us. We're thankful that you chose to reveal yourself to us so that we love the aroma that is Christ crucified. Help us to be humble. Help us to be bold with the message and to be willing to share it with others. Help us to be truly loving and honest. Pray that the gospel would change our lives. None of us have graduated from the truth of the cross. We all need Jesus. We all need the gospel, whether we're unsaved or have been saved for years. We love you for saving us and for offering us salvation. Pray that that love would be expressed in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.